This morning we have the privilege of welcoming the McGill family to us. That's Gabe and his wife, Melissa, along with their children, Melody and Nathaniel. Um, coming, coming off of our elders retreat with our attention given to lots of different things, it's helpful if someone is willing to serve our church and, and preach. However, we wanted to take the opportunity to introduce to you all Gabe and Melissa because Currently, they are finishing up their last week at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College in Louisville, along with, uh, you might remember, Merrick and Abby Potter, who came to join us a few months ago. Gabe and Melissa have come to the Pastors College by way of our sister Sovereign Grace Church, um, Grace City Church of Frankfurt, Pennsylvania, which is a neighborhood within the urban Philadelphia area. And they, they've had hopes of planting a Sovereign Grace Church in Western Pennsylvania in a small town called Warren, which if Gabe has the opportunity or afterwards to, to explain a bit more about Warren and why they wanna go there, I'll let him do that. But after Steve and I met with the other pastors from our region, that's, that's like Indiana, uh, Ohio, a little bit of Pennsylvania, just five churches, um, we, we asked you that you would join in prayer that from, from these churches, these five churches, this region of churches, that they would plant churches for the glory of God. And though we wanna continue praying for that specific aim, that specific goal, uh, we specifically had Gabe and Melissa in mind because they are at the doorstep of pre preparing to plant that church soon. And we wanted you to meet them so that we could all get an idea of what the Lord has opened the door for, and so we can begin to be knit with them as they become a part of our region of churches. Um, and we, we just want to um, get to know and experience them even prior to that church plant happening, so that when, Lord willing, when that does happen, we can support them wholeheartedly in prayer, in, in our encouragements to them, being around Gabe and Melissa, hopefully in, in the months to come. So, Gabe, can you come on up in church? Would you please welcome the McGill family? Oh, what a joy and a privilege to come worship with you all this morning. Uh, as Kale was explaining, um, my wife and I are finishing up our year at the Pastors College, and immediately after graduation, we're going to be packing up our home and heading out to uh, Warren, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour south of Erie, Pennsylvania, so just below the Great Lakes. And we will be planting in the thriving metropolis of Warren, just under 9,000 people. So a little bit of a shift from Philadelphia where we've been serving. And uh, just so excited to see what God is going to do in and through that church there in Warren. Uh, so the question has come up, why, why plant in Warren? So a little bit about the, the area of Warren, uh, it hit a economic downfall that hit its lowest point in the early 80s. And since that time, it really hasn't bounced back at all. And so that area has seen great economic depression. There's very little opportunity there for the children that are growing up in that area to uh, have any kind of career or advancement. And so it's a place of pretty widespread uh, poverty and just a sense of, of hopelessness. And so when I think of, of Warren, these words from Isaiah just come to mind. From Isaiah 61, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. These words were echoed at the beginning of Jesus' ministry by Jesus himself, and he said, in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise to bring good news to the poor and the brokenhearted. In the area of Warren, most of the people that you would ask would say, yes, I'm a Christian. They, they would wholeheartedly embrace that. But they would clarify, I'm not a church-going Christian. Churches are places for people who have their life together. Churches are places for people who are holy and, and who have a deep passion for God. I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm, I'm the kind of Christian whose life is a mess. I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't have it all together. And so our hope with Planting and Warren is to create a church where those who are a mess, those who are broken, those who are hurting, have a place where they feel welcome to come and to be built up and to be encouraged by the gospel, to hear the good news that sets captives free. So few ways that you guys can be praying for our church plant over the next year. Uh, the first is just prayer that God would raise up uh, some men and women to join us in this endeavor, specifically men that he has gifted for leadership. When we planted the church in the neighborhood of Frankfurt in Philadelphia, we had the privilege of having two men already ordained as a part of that church plant and one more man, <coughs> excuse me, one more man that was already on the track to ordination. And so we were just blessed of a small church plant with less than 30 people starting out. Uh, we had a leadership team of three godly men. And just the blessing that was to have the different giftings, the different experience and perspectives of those three men building into the church. And so we would just pray that the Lord would do a similar work in Warren, that he would send men with a passion for the gospel and a heart for that area to join us in leading the church there. Uh, second prayer would just be for opportunity to connect with the neighbors there in Warren, to begin to reach to those that are not currently connected with a church and to begin to invite them in to fellowship with us. Uh, we've already had a number of opportunity to meet some of uh, the neighbors that we're going to have as we move out there and just wonderful chances to share the gospel with them. And they're, they're very excited that we're moving into the neighborhood. Uh, so we've just felt very welcome there already. So we're excited to continue to build those relationships. And one final prayer request would just be for our house. So we purchased a house around Thanksgiving while we were still at the PC. Uh, it's a very old house and hasn't had anyone live in it for a while. So there's been a lot of renovations, which has been challenging from living eight hours away uh, to have to run out on weekends and have to redo all the plumbing and wiring and everything else that's had to be done. So uh, we're going to have about a week after the PC where we're going to be staying with my parents and trying to get this house finished up. And then the truck is scheduled to bring all of our stuff. And so uh, we're just praying that God would give us the grace to finish the work that needs done, that this house would be ready to be a home for us. <clears throat> so if you are interested in partnering with us just by praying for our church plant. Uh, on the back table there, we have these prayer cards just with our contact information on it. Uh, every couple months, we send out a newsletter just with some updates on where things are at with the church planning, as well as with updated prayer requests, ways that you guys can just be praying for us. So if you'd be interested in receiving those updates, feel free to take one of these cards and just shoot me an email at the email address at the bottom and just say, hey, I would love to receive your updates, and we'd love to get you on that list. So. All right. We're going to be looking this morning 
at Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the last half of this chapter. On February 1st, 2003, it was a Saturday morning, and I did the same thing I did every Saturday morning that time. I got my blank cassette, and I stuck it in my stereo, tuned it to the local Christian radio station, and got ready to record the Focus on the Family kids programs that were going to come on. But that day, about halfway through Adventures in Odyssey, there was a sudden break in the story. And a voice came on that said, we interrupt this regularly scheduled program to bring you this breaking news. It was the morning that the Columbia Space Shuttle had broken apart upon re-entry, and seven astronauts had perished on that. When we hear a story suddenly stop, and a new story suddenly come on, our ears perk up because we know something important is about to happen. Something vital is about to be told to us. In the story we're going to look at today, the gospel writer Mark is telling a story about Jesus and a man named Jairus. And right in the middle of telling this story, there's this sudden break, and he tells us a different story. This is very intentional. Mark did not have to include this interruption to the story he was telling. In fact, we know that the gospel writers didn't include all the details about every story. Uh, we, we know this from their own words. John, in his final chapter, says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus said and did. Were every one of them written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel writers are very intentional about what details they capture and what details they leave out. So it makes us ask, why did he include this interruption? It should make our ears perk up and say, what is so significant that is happening in this interruption, and how does it relate to the larger story? Now, to give you a little context for the story, this is actually the third in a series of stories that Mark is telling, and in each one, he's highlighting a different aspect of Christ's authority and his power. The first story is Christ crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and a big storm is whipped up, and these are experienced sailors, but they are certain that they are going to die. They're certain this is the end. This storm is too big for them to, to wade through, and yet Christ stands up, and with a word, he calms the sea. And so this is showing Christ's authority and power over nature, an authority that only God has. In Psalm 65, 7, it says, God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. He is displaying an authority and a power of God over nature. In the second story, they arrive at the other side of the sea, and Jesus immediately meets with a man that is possessed by many demons. He's, he's living in a graveyard, cutting himself with broken pottery. Nobody can contain this man. He's so wild, so out of control because of this evil spirits that are possessing him. And again, with a word, Jesus casts out the demons and leaves him in his right mind. And so he's showing his power and his authority over even the forces of evil, even over spiritual forces. Now, Mark is going to address something much closer to home for us. What power and authority does Christ have over the corrupting effects of sin in a broken world? What power does Christ have 
to reach into brokenness. Think about the corrupting effects that sin has had in your own life. Think about a wayward teen who has abandoned his parents' faith. He's, he's living his own life and destroying it. Think about a young lady who's trapped by her eating disorder, terrified somebody's going to discover her secret. Think about the person who receives a cancer diagnosis in the hospital. Think about the brokenness created by sexual abuse. What hope, what power does Christ have in the midst of such brokenness? This is the question that Mark is going to address in our story this morning. So look with me at Mark chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. They came, one of, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus is just arriving back from his trip across the Sea of Galilee. And when he comes, everybody's hearing about his miracles. His fame is starting to spread. And so a huge crowd gathers to hear him teach, to, to ask for healing, to uh, seek him to do something for them. In the midst of this crowd, there's a man named Jairus. This is, it says he's one of the leaders of the synagogue. And so he's a respected man in the Jewish community. This is, would be equivalent to an elder in one of our churches. This is a man of character, a man of authority. 
and his daughter is sick. She's so sick, everybody is certain she is going to die. But he hears Jesus is in town. And so he rushes out to meet Jesus. He says, Jesus, my daughter, she's at the point of death. Come, touch her, heal her. Jesus is last hope. And Jesus agrees, and he begins to come with Jairus to go heal his daughter. But on the way, there's interruptions. We see in verse 24, it says, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So everybody's pressing in. They're having trouble getting anywhere because this crowd is just pressing in on all sides. Everyone's trying to get close to Jesus. Everyone's trying to touch him. And and he's weeding his way through, trying to get to Jairus' house so that he can heal his daughter. It says in verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So here we have the beginning of this interruption to to Mark's story. He stops and he begins to tell us about this woman. Now this woman had some sort of illness that caused perpetual menstrual bleeding and this was a big deal. It wasn't just a matter of discomfort or illness. To the Jewish community, this was impactful. You see, this exact illness is discussed in Leviticus chapter 15 when Moses is giving the laws about what is clean and what is unclean. And according to those laws, this woman, as long as she is bleeding, is considered unclean by the Jewish community. What that means is everything and everyone she touches is considered unclean. Now, for a nation that has experienced the judgment of God for forgetting his laws and spending 70 years in exile, having returned to their promised land, they became very serious about following God's law. They knew what led them into exile. It was disobeying God's law. And so every aspect of the law was examined, it was scrutinized, and they tried to practice it, not just what it said, but above and beyond. They, they were not going to make the same mistake their fathers did. And so what that meant for a woman who was considered unclean by nature of this illness was that nobody would dare to touch her. She has lived 12 years without human contact other than the administrations of physicians at whose hands she suffered. This woman has not felt a handshake, a hug, a kiss. She would never have been invited into somebody else's house to share a meal because everything she sat on would have been unclean and certainly nobody would have gone into her house. Worst of all, this woman would not have been allowed to take place of anything at the synagogue or the temple because those were extremely holy and clean places. So she is experiencing complete isolation from her community. And this leads her to a place of hopelessness and desperation. For 12 years, she has gone from doctor to doctor trying to find something that will take away this illness. And it says she has suffered much at the hands of physicians. She is willing to go through whatever agony it takes to cure this disease. And at the end of this, she's left penniless. She is broke. There's nothing left to her and says she's in worse condition now than when she started. This is a woman at the end of her rope, a woman who is weary of fighting against this brokenness. But she hears a report of Jesus, 
And so in verse 27, it says, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garment, I will be made well. So she has this plan. She hears about this rabbi who's healing people with a touch. And she says, ah, if I can get close enough to touch him, maybe he can make me well. Maybe he can do what no one else has been able to do. But she has a problem. Because she's unclean, she can't touch a rabbi. Rabbis are extremely holy. These were the guys that, these were the cleanest of clean. And what's more, Jesus is already being perceived as a prophet. He's a holy man. You do not bring a holy man in contact with something that is unclean. You do not defile him. This would be the greatest insult in the Jewish community. But she has this plan. If I can, if I can just come up and just just touch his garment. Uh, one of the gospels says the hem of his garment. She's trying to touch the least part of him in order to limit the contamination. She's trying to contaminate him as little as possible with her uncleanness. And something absolutely remarkable happens. In verse 30, it says, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. So this woman comes and she touches Jesus, and immediately she feels the healing that happened. It is so easy for us to miss this. In light of all the other healings that Jesus is doing, it's so easy for us to miss the miracle that is taking place right here. You see, in all of Jewish history, Whenever somebody who was unclean touched somebody who was clean, the uncleanness flowed into him who was clean, making him unclean. But when she touched Jesus, that was reversed. Instead of her corrupting Jesus with her uncleanness, the wholeness and completeness and cleanliness of Jesus flowed into her, and she was made clean this has never happened before in all of Jewish history. It goes against everything they knew about how the law worked. But Jesus perceives this. He perceives the power going out of him. He, he noticed the healing, and I love what he does. Now, remember, he's on a life-or-death mission. There's a girl who's about to die. He's fighting to get to the house, and he stops, and he goes, who touched me? And you could just sense the consternation of the disciples going, there is a crowd pressing in. Everybody here is trying to touch you. Why are we stopping to deal with this? But it just shows the heart of Christ for his sheep. Jesus is not just concerned that this woman have an experience of his power. He wants her to have an experience of relationship with him. And so he stops and he says, we're not going any farther until I can talk with this woman. Now, she shows a great deal of boldness in coming forward and uh, speaking, uh, speaking up. Uh, she says uh, in verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So she doesn't initially want to come forward. She doesn't want to admit what she did because everybody in the community would have known who she was. And by admitting that she was the one who came up and touched Jesus, boy, that would not have gone over well with her neighbors. But she realizes she can't hide from Jesus. 
And so she comes forward and she says, it was, it was me. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. When I hear this story, I can't help but think back to the story in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve took the fruit that they were not permitted to take. And in taking sin upon themselves, they who were once clean became corrupted and sinful. And in that story, God came looking for them too and says, where are you? And when they realized they couldn't hide from God and came forward, God gave them a curse because of the sin that had come upon them. Now again, a woman has touched something, but this time she who was unclean touched that which was clean and was made clean by it. And again, God is looking. And he says, where are you? And she comes forward realizing she can't hide from God. But this time, instead of a curse, she receives a blessing from God. This is the reversal, the transforming effect that Christ has on our world. And Christ does not just skirt the outer edges of our suffering. He wasn't content just to send healing from a distance. He was a God who came to be amongst us. He waded into the brokenness and the suffering of our world that he might wrap his arms around us and meet us in the midst of suffering. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, profitable, uh, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now Mark returns us to our regularly scheduled program. <clears throat> While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So while Jesus is dealing with this woman, servants come and, and tell Jairus, don't, don't bother the master anymore. She's gone. It's too late. The gospel writers don't tell us how Jairus responded, but you can only imagine. This man who had barely hope left is now beyond all hope. His, his daughter has just died. Imagine the, the anger he would be feeling in that moment. Woman, you suffered for 12 years. You couldn't wait one more hour to come to Jesus. If you had waited, my daughter might be alive. And now it's too late. But Jesus looks at him and he says, do not fear, only believe. Believe what? What is, what is Jesus calling him to believe? Jesus is calling him to believe that the man whose purity was able to drive out the corruption of sin, the one who with a touch was able to make a broken woman whole, the man who just reversed everything they knew about the corruption of sin is standing before him, and he's coming to his daughter. The faith that he's calling him to only makes sense if you know who Jesus is, what he is showing himself to be. He's the one who deals with sin and the brokenness of worlds, and he heals it. And so in verse 37, it says, And he allowed no one to come to him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? 
the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus enters into a house of mourning and says, why are you weeping? He knows why they're weeping. He knows that the little girl's dead. And yet he says, don't weep, she's not dead. Why would Jesus say that, knowing full well that she is indeed dead? Because he is reminding them of something. He's reminding them of who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus is the one who has the power to reverse all effects of sin, including death, the greatest impact that sin brought into our world. Jesus is there to reach down and pull this little girl out of death and bring her back to life. And we know from the Gospels that he is eventually going to do an even greater act to defeat death. We know eventually Jesus himself will die and will defeat death forever through his resurrection. The book of Hebrews reflects on this triumph in chapter 2. Beginning in the middle of verse 8, we read, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And a little further on in verse 14, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and delivering all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through his incarnation, through Christ taking on our humanity, he entered into a world enslaved by death, that he might forever conquer death and the fear of it. We have not yet seen the full effects of that, but there is coming a day where he will return, and it says he will put away death forever. It will be the last enemy to be crushed under his heel, and death will be no more. So I return again to the question we asked at the beginning. What power does Christ have over the corrupting effect of sin in a broken world? Mark answers that for us. Christ has the power to completely reverse the effects of sin and to bring complete healing to those who seek him. Maybe this story resonates with you this morning. Maybe you resonate with Jairus, that you have gotten to a place where there's just no hope left. The situation has gotten so bad that you don't see how God could ever make this right again. Or perhaps you identify with this woman having suffered a prolonged suffering, having tried everything you can think of to alleviate that suffering, and yet it persists, it hangs on, and you don't know if it's ever going to get any better. May this bring you hope. May this story remind you of the hope that we have in Christ and call you to run to Jesus. 
So there are three examples, um, th three things I want to highlight from these two individuals' examples as to how they responded in the midst of this suffering towards Christ. The first thing that I think we can uh, very easily overlook is that they heard about Jesus. Now, this may sound like a strange thing to, to highlight from this story, but these were not chance encounters. We have a number of chance encounters uh, throughout the Gospels of people that they weren't seeking Jesus. Jesus came and found them. They just ran into Jesus, and he transformed their lives. But these individuals, they knew who Jesus was. They had heard about him from their neighbors. They were hear hearing about his miracles, about his healings. And it was this that stirred them up. I think too often when we go through hardships, it's our inclination, at least it's my inclination, to pull away from anyone who is rejoicing in the grace that they're receiving from God. I don't want to hear about how good you're having it. I don't want to hear about how God's blessing you. I want to live in my world of suffering. I, I want to feel the pity, that, the self-pity that comes with feeling like God is never going to come through. And yet the example that we have time and time again throughout the scripture is one of the people of God coming together that they may recount the graces and mercies that God has faithfully given to them. We see this in Deuteronomy, the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, before Moses gives the people the, the covenant and reminds them of the covenant that God has made, he gives a history lesson recounting all the deeds that God has done to lead Israel out of slavery to the promised land. Psalm 136 is another recounting of Israel's history, going step by step through everything that God had done to bring them to the place where they were. And each refrain ends with, his steadfast love endures forever. It's a reminder of the grace and mercy that God is continually showing. Habakkuk 3, the prophet recalls in poetic verse the, the work that God has done in the past to deliver Israel, and he looks forward with expectation to the deliverance that they are going to experience in the future. And then Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith as it's called, is a recounting of one story after another of individuals who were faithful in trusting the promise of God, even though it says many of them did not ever get to see the fruit of the hope that they had. But God his redeeming work continued through them, and the message of hope was theirs. And so I would encourage you, if you are struggling this morning, if you are in a place where you're saying, I am finding it hard to find hope that God is going to come through for me this morning, I would encourage you to build into this body, to come around those who can encourage you with reminders of ways that God has shown grace in your life and in their life and who will take you to Scripture and show you the grace upon grace promised in Scripture. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are going to have hardships. If you are not experiencing hardship this morning, praise God, but it's coming. <laughs> there will come a day where you will experience that hardship. And so the encouragement from Scripture is for us to gather together that we may withstand those hardships through words of grace. So they heard about Jesus. The second thing that I want to highlight here from their example is the faith that they demonstrated in Jesus. Now, we don't know how great their faith was in coming to Jesus. Both of these individuals were brought to 
a place where they had no other hope. There was no recourse. There was no other option. Jesus was their last final hope. Surely Jairus's faith died when a servant came and told him his daughter was dead. Certainly he didn't think there was anything Jesus could do at that point. And yet with whatever faith they brought, Christ did a transforming work in their lives. So you may be struggling this morning with feeling faith. It may be difficult to come believing that Christ is, is, has any power over your situation or that he cares at all. But I would encourage you to contemplate the cross and the man who died on it. That man came and died so that you might have hope. Jesus is not callous to your hardships. He's not distant from them. He is meeting you in them. Paul writes to the Philippians this encouragement that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul had complete confidence that God was at work in each and every life around him. And Paul was not an optimist. He was not a man that was ignorant of suffering. He was not a man ignorant of trials. He writes this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. There was, there was no way out for Paul. He was convinced, this is it. We're done. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul knows what it is to be in a hopeless situation, and he says, why did God allow me to come to such a place of hopelessness so that I would not rely on myself, I would not put my faith in what I can do, but that I would rely solely on God in a situation where God is the only one who can make any difference at all. So let us be encouraged by these examples of faith. May we bring what little faith we have and say, Christ, this is, this is what I have. I believe, help my unbelief, and expect that Christ can do transforming works in that. The final thing that I want to highlight from their example is that they came to Jesus. It's so easy for us to say that we believe. It's so easy as we sit here this morning hearing this and saying, yes, this, in this moment, I am encouraged. In this moment, I have faith. It's harder on a Wednesday morning when everything is going wrong to run to Jesus and have that same confidence that he will meet us in that moment. It takes a great deal of humility and emptiness to come to Christ and say, I've made a mess. I have nowhere else to run. Please heal my brokenness. But we know that God promises to give grace to the humble, to those who diligently seek after him. This is why we're planting in Warren. Warren is a city that is largely without hope, without expectation that anything can change, that any transforming work can be done. And we are excited to bring this message to them, to show them that there is one who can bring hope in the most hopeless situations. And there's one who's calling us to himself in our brokenness, in our emptiness, in our messiness, to come to him that we might receive healing. So in conclusion this morning, I just want to encourage you, if you are trusting in Christ this morning and you're walking through hardships, you're weighed down 
by the brokenness of this world and you're feeling trapped and overwhelmed by your circumstances, may you walk out this morning taking heart in that encouragement from Philippians that he who began a good work in you will continue it till the day of Christ. And may you, like Paul, not lean on yourselves, but lean on Christ fully. If you're here this morning and you're experiencing struggles, but you've not yet tasted the freedom that comes through a relationship with Christ, then I would invite you to share in that relationship this morning, to come to him with all your burdens, all your cares, and lay it before Christ, asking him to heal the brokenness in your life. This transforming work begins within. It begins with the brokenness of our sin-sick hearts where Christ enters in and he transforms who we are that we might experience grace upon grace. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This throne of grace is still available to you this morning. Let's gather before that throne together in prayer as we close out. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus into a broken, sin-sick world that, Lord, he might heal us. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to do this work of healing, this work of encouragement in this group of believers this morning. Lord, I don't know all the struggles that they are facing. I don't know the burdens that are on their hearts, the hopeless situations that they're weighed down by. But Lord, I know that your gospel is sufficient to meet them in that and that you have grace to bring them through and you have a glory on the other side of that suffering. So, Lord, I pray if there's those here this morning that are struggling to feel that grace, that they're struggling to feel that hope, would you just come and press upon them this morning the hope that you have in Christ and the healing that only Christ can bring about. May we lean into you in faith in our times of trials. And, Lord, if there is someone here this morning that has been trying to do this on their own, trying to do this apart from the healing work of Christ, Lord, would they stop running this morning? Would they stop trying to accomplish that themselves this morning? And would they instead embrace the gift of grace that Christ offers and the healing that only he can bring? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.